with me in your copy of God's Word this morning again to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, we once again turn to the first gospel as we continue to make our way through Matthew. As you turn there, before we hear the preaching of God's Word, we make Psalm 119 verse 18 our prayer this morning. O God, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law, O God. We pray in Christ. Amen. the, The majority of you gathered here today are covenant members of this local body of Grace Baptist Church. And as such, it simply means that you have agreed to covenant with this local body. You've agreed to carry out that covenant, and you've agreed to that which is listed in that covenant according to uh, the church covenant, according to what the scriptures say and instruct us how to function as a local body, how to function as the people of God. Those of you here today, perhaps you're visiting or who are not members, who have not taken that step and covenanted together, then I I want you to know I'm going to share one of the covenant statements as it pertains to our passage this morning. And I hope that as we look at this passage, as we look at this statement, I hope what you will see in the statement and then in our time together this morning is that, that we are a people who take our relationship with the Lord seriously, and we're a people who take our relationship and commitment to one another seriously. We, we care about those things. And for you who are here today that are members, I hope that this is a a time in which you're simply reminded of our commitment that we have made to one another. The covenant is there on the screen, but this is the statement out of it. This is not the entirety of the covenant. If you're visiting, this is not the, the length of it. It's just one statement of it that we've made as members, a commitment that we've made to one another. And it says this, we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise and affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. Now, this statement is based on multiple passages of Scripture. If you get a copy of our church covenant, we've got all the Scriptures listed underneath that, that are the foundation for those statements but this statement in particular, it really, you can think of it as the, uh, the context of the statement and then also the, the task of the statement. There's kind of four tasks that this statement lays out for us, that we've made a commitment to one another. The, the context is this, is walking together in brotherly love. We've committed to, as a church family, as a local body of believers, to walk together as those that love one another. In brotherly, brotherly love, brotherly affection. This is based on passages like John 13, 34, where, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Or Romans twelve ten, where we read that we are to love one another with a brotherly affection. It's based on 1 Corinthians 13, a passage that, that many of you are aware of and familiar of. You might have heard it preached at a, at a wedding. It's very common in a wedding. It's, it's situated contextually between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. That's rocket science right there, right? 13 is between 12 and 14, right? Well, 
what's going on in those two chapters. He's talking about the body of Christ. How do we function? How do we live together as the body of Christ? And so he teaches us on what does it really look like to love one another. And you have that beautiful explanation of what love is. In 1 John 3.18, where John is, is describing how we should love one another, and he tells us that we are to love one another in deed and in truth. Right? Indeed and in truth. It's not just this kind of random, mamby-pamby, just kind of light, go as you come, whatever love that just makes you feel good. We are to love indeed and in truth. Now there's, there's tasks that we commit to one another. If we were to love one another with brotherly love, there's four tasks there in that statement that we point out. The first one is this, is that we have committed to exercise affectionate care towards one another affectionate care towards one another. We don't merely just come in and rub shoulders and leave as we come and go from worship. We are to care for one another. We're to show that care for one another in the way we speak to one another, the way we treat one another, the way we serve one another. We show an affectionate care to one another. The second thing it states is that we have committed to watch over each other. To watch over each other. We've committed to watch over one another to, to act in a way that, that guards and act in a way that strengthens, to act in a way that protects one another. And thirdly, we say that we are going to admonish one another. We're going to admonish one another. This simply means that we've committed to, to warn and to reprimand each other as needed. And vice versa, to allow others to do that to ourselves. That's, what's the, that's the importance of when we come to a moment, we, we come, we have a family that's going to join this morning at the end of the service, and, and when we come to that moment and we say, have you read the covenant? Do you agree to the covenant? And they say yes. They are saying, I agree to do these things to you, and I agree to have you do these things to me. And then when I look at you later on this morning, I say, do you covenant with this family? Then what you're saying is, I agree to admonish them as needed, and I agree that I would be open to having them admonish me as needed, right? We allow others to speak into our lives. And then fourthly, we have committed to entreat one another. This simply means that we've, we've committed to, to, this, uh, to earnestly plead with one another, to entreat one another, to perhaps beg of one another, to walk faithfully with the Lord, to flee from sin. Those are the commitments we make in that statement. As covenant members, that's our agreement that we have with one another here as the body of Christ at Grace Baptist. And our passage from Matthew 18 this morning serves to explain that and to help us better understand how exactly we admonish and entreat one another when sin rears its ugly head. That's what the passage is about in Matthew 18 verses 15, really to 20, we'll probably only make it through 17 this morning. But that's what the passage is about. It's, it's a foundational teaching for our understanding of what is commonly known and called church discipline. It's foundational for how we understand that and how we act and carry it out. Let's read this morning the word of the Lord from Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, You've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So we come to this passage, as I said, it's, it's a, a foundational passage for how we understand the issue of church discipline. We just talked last week, as we looked at verses 10 through 14, we talked about uh, Jesus' instructions for when someone goes astray, when a, a believer goes astray. And now we turn to what, what do we do when, when one is in sin and living in sin, and how do we, how do we go and, and perhaps bring them? They've gone astray. How do we do that? How do we carry that out? What do we, what do, we do to, to intervene on their behalf? Before we flesh that out and look at the various aspects of this passage, I want to just kind of make five initial comments that I think need to be said. When we think about church discipline, these are things that we need to understand and we need to come around in agreement on and recognize this morning. The first thing is this, is that no one is immune to sin. No one. No one's immune to sin. You have all sorts of warnings in Scripture. If you think about 1 Corinthians 10, 12, warns us to, to be careful, to be careful to, to guard ourselves lest we be tempted, lest we stumble. We saw that in the passage we meditated on in Galatians 6.1, talked about being careful and being aware and guarding ourselves as we try to help others guard ourselves because we too can fall into sin. Right? There's no one who's immune to sin. It doesn't matter how long you follow Christ doesn't matter how mature you are in him, you're not immune to stumbling into sin, right? Yes, we need to understand that and recognize that. There's no room for us to come to this passage with great pride thinking that would never be me. No one would ever approach me and rebuke me or admonish me. No one would ever do that. I never sin. Well, that's problematic. No one is immune to sin. The second thing we need to recognize is this, is that dealing with sin is at the same time the most difficult and most loving thing we can do for another believer. I, there's never been a time where I, I've spoken to somebody's life and confronted them in sin that it was easy. And there's never been a time that I've had someone do that to me where I was sitting there listening going, this is wonderful. I love this. This is great. And hang up the phone and go, wow, that's a wonderful conversation. I love it. No, it, it's not easy. It's difficult. But it is loving. It's loving. Parents, you recognize that. If you love your child, you will discipline your child, right? You will correct your child when they're wrong, right? The most unloving thing we can do as parents is what? Just watch them continue to go wayward without ever saying anything to them. Oh, we don't want to hurt their feelings, right? Those are, those are the kids that are like tearing Texas Roadhouse into shreds at lunch, right? Is, we don't want to hurt their feelings. Well, they're animals, right? No. It's difficult. It's loving. It's necessary. It's necessary to deal with sin. Third thing we need to say is this, is that church discipline is not only removal from membership. That's not the only thing it is. It, so, so many times we have this kind of really 
narrow view of what it is, right? It's, it's not just removal from membership. It, it occurs in a, a variety of ways. It occurs in a, a variety of levels, as we'll, we'll see in this passage and, and some of those other passages that we'll discuss today. It occurs in the foyer after service, before service. It occurs in your small groups. It occurs at Baxter's. It occurs even in this moment as we hear the word of the Lord and, and we read the word of the Lord. We, we read Psalm 51 and we had a time of confession. All of these times when we sit under the word of the Lord and we submit to it. Right? That's an important thing. We are a people of the Word. We submit to the authority of Scripture. And every time in that moment when God is correcting us, right, He's, he's correcting us, it, it is church discipline. He is disciplining us. When, when you interact with somebody in the foyer and you speak to them and, and they, maybe they, they have a terrible attitude or something about that and you, you gently say, you know, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? You know, and, and you kind of gently say that and, and maybe they're like, oh man, you're right, I shouldn't. Or maybe they keep on and, and later on this week you, you say, hey, let's go grab coffee and you go grab coffee and you say, wow, Todd, listen, you were, you were really upset Sunday, weren't you? Yeah, that was really harsh. I, I think you're really being harsh towards that individual and I really think you should show a little more grace there. You gently correct. Those, those are church discipline. There's times where you sit down and you, this ongoing process of working with someone, right? Those are all times of church discipline. Another, another way we see church discipline is very narrow is this. I, the fourth thing that we need to say is that it, church discipline is not just punishment, it's not just punishment. We, we have, again, we have a very narrow view of that word discipline, where we think it's just punishment. But again, we would understand that discipline is both formative and corrective, right? It's formative and corrective. It's something where we come and we, we sit before the Word of the Lord and we grow and we understand and we learn, right? It's something where, where we read God's Word and, and He teaches us, He reveals. I was, I was sharing with someone, I was having a meeting with yesterday morning that, that there's a, a passage in Ephesians that I've read time and time and time and time again. I, I, I don't even, I, I, seriously, I have no idea how many times I've read it. And I read it yesterday morning and God used it in my life to teach me and to form me with a better understanding of who He is. It's the formative side of discipline. He's growing me in him. He's sanctifying me by his word. But it is corrective also. It is corrective. So it, it spurs us on, it sanctifies us, it builds us up, but it also corrects us when we get off path. When we go into sin, it corrects us and brings us back into where we should be. But it's not narrowly only punishment. It's not only kicking out of the church. Okay? Church discipline is bigger than that. It's more important than that. It occurs more often than that at more levels than that. The fifth thing we need to say is this. Grace Baptist, if we are serious, if we're serious about holy living and we're serious about loving one another, if those two things, if we're truly serious about those two things, then we must be serious about lovingly dealing with sin in our lives, in our church. We have to be. We can't be serious about holy living and not deal with sin. We just can't. We can't be serious about loving one another and making that statement that was up a few minutes ago and saying, hey, we're going to walk with one another in brotherly love and we're going to do these things. 
if we're not willing to confront one another when necessary. You see, this church is called to be holy. It's called to be salt and light of the world. And if we're going to do those things, we have to be willing to correct, to rebuke, to admonish. And we have to also be willing to be corrected, to be rebuked, to be admonished. It goes both ways, right? We have to be willing for both of those to happen, okay? So let's look at Matthew 18 now. With that as a context setting, those things said, let's look at Matthew 18. Verse 15, we see the situation. We see the situation that sin is among God's people. That's the situation that Jesus is dealing with. He says, if your brother sins. So as he has been, we've talked about this time and time again in Matthew 18, the context is what? He's talking about how do we live as a messianic kingdom? How, does, how do we interact? How do we live together as the people of God? So if your brother sins against you, right? So Jesus' instruction here is for those inside the church, those who are a part of the messianic kingdom, those who are his people. This is not a teaching. This is not a section on how to confront unbelievers in their sin. This is not a, a section that teaches us how to carry out cultural engagement or evangelism. It's a call to what we would say and what we understand as church discipline. It's a call to spurring one another on to pursue Christ as we have committed to do, that we will follow him. So the situation then is that this brother is in sin. Now, some translations, and yours may have this, depending on what translation I'm reading out of the ESV, the some translations may say, if your brother sins against you, as the ESV does, the New American Standard just says, if your brother sins. They, they interpret it and scholars come at it, and, and some would say, you know what, it's specifically against you. Some would say, no, it's in general. The, the general rule, or as far as the translations, some translators come at it that way. Scholars in general as a whole say this is not something where you can go only, it's only if it's against you, particularly it's something that, that you have specifically done to me, then I can confront you. Uh, the scholarship theologians come to this and they understand that it is bigger than that it's any kind of sin that comes into a brother's life we have a responsibility to them it's based on the whole of the new testament looking at it contextually in the word of god and our responsibility to pursue holiness and to call one another to do so it's looking at truths like like 1 Corinthians 12 and understanding that we are part of the body of Christ and Paul's teaching there that if one member of the body suffers, all members suffer. So if there's one member that is in sin, it may not be something that you came right at me at, but it does affect me, right? It does involve me. And so we as the body of Christ have a responsibility to confront it and to help you through it. So if another believer is in sin, we are to call them to repentance, we have example after example after example in scriptures of this happening, okay? And so that's what the example is. The biblical teaching is that we are to lovingly deal with sin in our midst. In our midst. Again, the situation is a brother. 1 Corinthians 5 is, is one of the most helpful passages on this, on drawing a line. You can, you can flip there if you want. You don't have to. But 1 Corinthians 5, in the first eight verses there, Paul is confronting sexual immorality within the church. There's a situation within the church in which a, a, a man is, is acting just very, very ungodly. And he even says, he says, um, it's reported there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. So Paul just 
confronts it. He says he talks to them about dealing with it then, right? They, they must deal with it. They must remove this person. They must confront it. He dealt bluntly with that. Well, verse 9 to 13, I want you to hear this because when we talk about in, in Matthew 18, he says, if a brother sins against you, right? That we talked about this is something in the context of the people of God. It's not something we do evangelistically or looking at unbelievers and go, hey, I'm going to walk through this with you and da 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 Okay, here's what Paul says in, in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers, idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do, here's the line Paul draws, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul, Paul draws a very clear line here. That we are to judge one another within the church according to Scripture, to pursue holiness, to pursue righteousness, to live in accordance to the Word. We are not to be doing that outside. What do we do? With those outside the church, we are to evangelize them, to speak the gospel to them, to tell them about Christ. The lost are going to live like the lost. We're okay with that. We get that, right? The believers, the saved, should live like the saved. If you're not living like the saved, then the natural question is, are you saved? Are you a believer? We have to do what's hard. We have to do what's difficult. And I would say and contend to you that a lack of church discipline in the church in modern America, a lack of concern for the holiness of God's people, I would say that that is largely to blame for the weakness and the ineffectiveness of the church in the United States. I would say it's absolutely largely to blame. You know, Paul, Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 5. In, in 1 Corinthians 5, as he, he's talk, talking to them, he's calling them to, to confront the sin that's within them. He, he says this in, in verse 6 and 7. He says, do you not know that a Little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And he, confront, he confronts the church. Listen, the, the, the situation was terrible. And he calls it to account. But then he even confronts the whole church because evidently the whole church was boasting. And he says, your boasting is not good. It's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? We, we have to confront it. We have to walk through church discipline. The people of God are to be a holy nation. This is how Peter describes us. In 1 Peter 2.9, we are described as a holy nation. We must have a care for that. The New Testament church understood this. The New Testament church understood the importance of church discipline. You have situations like Acts 8.17-24 where a new convert 
Simon the magician. He, he's, a, he's a new believer. And he's rebuked by Peter because he thinks he can buy God's blessing. So in that moment, Peter rebukes him. He doesn't sit back and go, oh, that's no big deal. You know, you go ahead. I don't want to hurt your feelings. No, he rebukes him. Why? So that, so that for the goodness of your soul. Or in Galatians 1, when Paul writes to the Galatians, he writes and he says, I, I am astonished. I, ca I can't believe it. You're following a false gospel. What are you doing? Paul, that whole letter is, is in the context of that issue that Paul's confronting. In chapter 2, verse 11, 14 of Galatians, Paul talks about when he confronted Peter for gospel hypocrisy. The, the account of that is in Acts. And he talks about how he confronted Peter for his hypocrisy. In Galatians 6, 1, the, the reference that we read earlier, when Paul talks about this. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. He's giving instruction that if someone is, is caught in sin, someone has sin in their life, we should seek to restore him. We should seek to come alongside them, encourage them, pull them back in, lead them back in. In Philippians 4, 2, and 3, do you remember Paul's words to Yodia and Syntyche? He calls them to unity. They're fighting, there's something going on, and, and he calls them in the letter for all of time, for us to be talking about now, 2,000 years later, he calls them to unity. He's very blunt about it. He's concerned about it. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we're told to admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. In 2 Thessalonians 3.14 and 15, we read this. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You walk in disobedience to the word, Point it out. Warn them. 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 20. We're given instructions to how to respond to those who depart from the faith. In 2 Timothy 2, 14 and 19, we're told to confront divisive, irreverent words. In Titus 3, 10 to 11, we read, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. You can't read the scriptures and come away and go, you know what, we just shouldn't really care about church discipline. We need to overlook it. We don't want to do it because it's hard. It may hurt somebody's feelings. It may make me not a popular pastor. It may make our church, you know, somebody talk bad about it in the community. Listen, we have to care. We have to care about one another. If we care about one another's walk with the Lord, if we care about the integrity of this church, the testimony of this church to bring glory and honor to the name of Christ. We have to care about church discipline. We have to care about spurring one another on to walk with the Lord. Now, that's the situation. We need to think about the tool. What, what's, the, what's the tool that we use in this? Jesus says there, Matthew 18, verse 15, he says, if your brother sins, right, if he sins, Jesus isn't concerned with if he disagrees with your convictions. He, he's not concerned with if he disagrees with your opinions, with your political stance, with your action on this, action on that, the traditions of the church. He's concerned with if he sins. Okay? 
He's not concerned with we've never done it that way and all those other famous Baptist, Baptist statements. He's concerned with sin. Now, how do we know what sin is? Is it what I decide it is? Is it what tradition says it is? Is it what culture defines as sin? How do we know? The only one who can define sin is the one whom sin is against. That's God. And God has given us His Word. He has made Himself, His will, known to us that we might know Him, that we might know how to live for Him and glorify Him, that we might know what is in His will. The tool in church discipline is the Word of God. That is the tool. So we use the Word. We lean on the Word. We trust the Word in defining sin, confronting sin, and calling people to live in holiness as according to the Scriptures because we know that the Scripture is living and active. We know that it can do what I cannot. It, the words of God pierce all the way down to the core of man, all the way to the heart, to the bone, to the marrow, to judge the thoughts and intentions of man. It's the Word of God that does that. Not the Word of Todd, not me, not my opinion, but it's Scripture that does that. It's Scripture that is the primary means of sanctification. It is that which equips and trains us for holy living. It is that which instructs us in righteousness. So the Bible is our tool in church discipline. That means that we don't add on extra biblical sins. That's what we call legalism. It also means that we don't ignore biblical sins. That's what we call liberalism, right? We don't do either one of those. We simply hold to the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. That's it. Just the good stuff. Doesn't say that, does it? Some of you know what it says. It says the Word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Listen, that tells me if I'm going to be complete as a man of God, if I'm going to be equipped for every good work, then that means that there is going to be times that the Word of God is used by His people, by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit to teach me. There's also going to be times when I am corrected by it, when I'm reproved by it, that I'm equipped to be who God's called me to be. It's the Word of God that does that. We're quick to say, hey, Scripture is great for learning and, and for teaching. But sometimes we kind of bristle to think about it reprimanding us and correcting us. But that is what the Word of the Lord is for. We need to think about verse 15 to 17, the task then. We think about the situation, a brother is in sin, the, the tool, because we, we have to know what is sin, how do we define sin, how do we understand sin. And then we think about the task, verses 15 to 17, the task is to go and tell him. Go and tell him his fault. 
Go indicates that we are to take the initiative to lovingly confront a brother or sister in sin. We are to take that initiative. We don't just sit back and go, wow, they're, they're living in ungodliness. They're living in rebellion. They're living in sin. I'm just going to sit here and wait till they come and they talk to me. We are to take initiative. So I would say this. If someone comes to you about sin, then I, w- I would say we need to be thankful that they are A, obeying the Lord, and B, that they love you enough to come confront you. We need to understand that. That they take the Word of God seriously. They care enough to step into what is awkward and what is hard to spur you on and encourage you to walk with the Lord. They care more about your relationship with Christ than they do about hurting your feelings. They care more about your relationship with God than making you upset or offending you. They care about you. They love you enough to speak truth into your life. And Jesus says, go. And He says, tell Him. Tell him. This word tell him is very blunt. It's a very blunt word in the Greek. It's the same word family as 2 Timothy 3.16 where it says reprove. This is the same family. It's the same one. It's not just, hey, tell him. It's rebuke him. Like, tell him the truth. Expose it. Reprove. Reprimand. That's what the word means here. It's to go and to do those things. And this statement, when he says go and tell him, it removes the option for us to look over and just ignore Ignore it. That we're not going to do anything about it. It's just like, eh, who cares? No, we don't have that option. If a brother is in sin, we go and tell them. We think about Proverbs 27, 17, right? You've heard that a lot. and it's, A lot of men's ministries use this. One man uh, uh, sharpens another, right? Uh, as, iron, was it, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, right? Well, how does that sharpening occur? It's difficult. It's difficult. Sharpening occurs when, when we come and we, we have difficult conversations. And we spur one another on. Listen, to, to be spurred on is oftentimes a, a, a kick in the pants. Right? It's because we need to be spurred on because we're not doing anything. Right? We need someone to push us on. To give us that little, let's go. Right? We sharpen each other. And in verse 15 to 17, that task, go and tell, Jesus gives us a process for how we do this, a process for how we walk through confronting people in our midst of sin. This is a, this is a general teaching. It's a general practice for how we are to use church discipline. And a couple things I would point out here as we think about this, this process that Jesus lays out here is, first, Jesus is concerned, as you'll see when you read through it, he's concerned with it staying uh, limited to as few people as possible as few people as possible would be involved in that process. So it's not something that is, you know, as soon as I, Mike has a sin, that I, I bring everybody in and say, hey, you guys, listen, you're not going to believe what Mike said this week. It's crazy. In sin, the brother, in sin. No. We keep that limited to as few people as possible. Right? So that's one thing we need to note. We'll talk about that. We'll hash it out. The other thing we need to note is Jesus gives no timetable in this process. He doesn't say, you know what, the, uh, uh, week one, you do this. Week two, you do that. Week three, you do this. And by week four, this should be taken care of. He doesn't say, you know what, you, you come and you have that first conversation. If he hasn't responded in three hours, then you bring somebody else with you. He doesn't give a, a timetable here. 
It simply means we need wisdom, doesn't it? We need wisdom to know when to move forward, when to be patient, what to say, when to say it, who to involve. We need wisdom in these things. So, so look at the, the steps there. Jesus gives us four steps, four, four parts of this process. The first one is in verse 15. Go and tell him between you and him alone. So the first step is that you personally go to the individual. And he says here, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And so what we know here is if at any time, if at any time their brother or sister repents, then it's over. We've won our brother or sister. It's done. And we don't then go, okay, well, now that you've repented and you're restored, now I need to go and bring two or three people and tell them in, the, in our prayer time on, on Wednesday night prayer meeting, I'll go ahead and list it and let everybody know what you've been doing, and then we'll talk about it on, in our Sunday school, and then also on Sunday morning or the members meeting, we'll make it all known. Even though you repented and you're restored. No, if at any time he repents, you've won your brother. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. The second step then he gives is in verse 16. If he does not listen right? Verse 16, if he does not listen, take two, one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is the precedent set in Deuteronomy 19.15, that two or three witnesses are brought in, brought together, right, to validate a claim. And so he says, listen, if he doesn't believe or listen and respond just to you, then take one or two people with you and confront him again. Now, this does two things. When you involve other people, it does two things. One is it, it brings other people in to, to validate and to make sure that you're seeing things correctly. So if I go and, and there's something going on, and I, I go to Bill and I confront Bill and say, brother, I'm worried about this. And I, I speak into his life and, and Bill says, you know, we talk, whatever, and he doesn't listen. He doesn't change. There is a possibility that I've understood something wrongly, right? It, it could be that, that I, I am off. You know, maybe I'm off. So I bring in two more people or another person and say, hey, listen, I'm concerned about this. Let's go talk to Bill. And we come in. They say, you know what? You're right. No, you're, you're right. This is the right interpretation. Understanding Scripture. Scripture clearly says that. Bill is living in sin. Let's go and talk to him. And we go talk to him. So one, it, it serves to kind of protect you and to make sure that you are thinking rightly, right? That you're not on a hobby horse or whatever that might be. The other thing it does is when you come with two to three people is it brings an added weight, an added importance, a heaviness of that moment. That at that moment, you know, Bill may have said, well, no, brother, I think you're just wrong. Well, now two to three men come and we say, Bill, we're concerned about you, brother. We're concerned. And Bill's looking at three men in the eyes who have all agreed and said, we look and we see and this is the deal. It adds weight to the rebuke and the warning. If he responds, repents, praise the Lord, they've won their brother. If not, if he continues in his sin, verse 17, continues in his sin, if he refuses to listen to them, you tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. You bring it before the body, the people of God, to tell them of what is going on. That the church might might pray, might appeal, might reprimand, might, might call, might entreat, might beg this brother or sister to pursue Christ, to repent and turn back to right living for the Lord, to repent and turn back to living as one 
who is living worthy of the gospel for which he professes to believe. So tell it to the church. Now that's where sometimes that you can skip a step. Some people go, well, you didn't listen to me, you didn't listen to this group, where you're out of here. No, this is an important step that you come before and you tell the church that the church might intercede and might approach and call that believer, that brother or sister, back into right standing with the Lord. But if he does not listen, the back end of verse 17 there, he says, if he does not repent, what? If he does not listen, he says, even if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, the first thing it, it does mean, indeed, is that you remove him from the local fellowship. You remove her from the local member fellowship. That they are removed from the local body. But I believe it is very significant that Jesus says you treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. And the reason that's significant is because Jesus, through his life and ministry, has shown us how to treat Gentiles and tax collectors. Right? He showed love for them. He showed compassion for them. He cared for them. He evangelized them. He treated them well. But they were not part of the fellowship, the disciples. They're not part of the local body. He did not look to them and say, you are good, you are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. He cared for them, he ministered to them, he evangelized them, but they were not among the fellowship of believers. And that's what this is saying. They are to be removed. Essentially, it's a statement that the church, in doing this, can no longer attest to or affirm that that brother or sister is a believer. That's one reason church membership is so important. That we bring someone in and we gather with them and this family that joins a little bit later. You had no idea that you were going to be using the sermon. Welcome to Grace. <laughs> now if they don't join, we're all going to be... Frustrated. <laughs> I'm not looking at anyone. <laughs> um, when they come, part of what we do is we're affirming and standing beside them and saying as best as we can tell. They've met with Pastor Matt. They've been around the other pastors, elders. And as best we can tell, they're believers. They understand the gospel, following Christ. They want to live for His glory. We'll talk about next week the authority that's given to the church to bring them in and to remove. Because at this point, if the brother is removed, the sister is removed, it's because of this question, can the church continue to affirm a person's profession of faith, is no longer able to be answered with a yes. If it comes to that point, the church is looking and saying, listen, as best we can tell, we can't, in agreement, say that you're a believer. Because why? Because 1 John 3, 6 says that no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. This isn't saying that we're perfect. This isn't a view of what's known as Wesleyan perfectionism. That's not that. John wrote earlier in, in his gospel or in his letter in chapter 1, he writes very clearly that if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And he calls us to confess our sin, right? He calls us to deal with our sin, to bring it before the Lord. But if one keeps on sinning, lives in that sin, just keeps on in it, is okay with it, says, I don't care what the scriptures say. I don't care what the people of God say. I'm just going to continue in my path. And the word of God says, brother, you do not know Christ. If you're content with living in sin. And so the church, in removing one, is making that statement. Now the last thing, last thing that we need to note this morning from this passage, and I say this for last because I think it's critical in importance. We could have stated this up front. But I want this to just kind of be resonating in the back of your head as we think about this text. The goal of church discipline. The goal is what? Amen. The goal is restoration. That's the goal. The goal is not to flex religious muscle. The goal is not to try to prove how holy we are as a church. The goal is not to beat somebody down. The goal is not to be rude or mean or be legalistic. The goal is that they might be restored. Jesus says, if he listens, you have won. You've gained your brother. Listen, I, I love the times. I, I love the times in which people have been in, involved in sin and, and it's been hard and you step into that awkward, hard conversation. You don't know how they're going to respond and you talk to them and you lovingly, graciously share truth with them and they repent. You're right. And you pray together and you come and you, you walk out and go, man, praise the Lord. I love that. I love it. That's the goal. Repentance and restoration is always the goal, whether it's church discipline that occurs on a very private level in the foyer, in the offices of one of the pastors, at Baxter's with an elder, whatever it is. Whenever that is, the repentance and restoration is the goal. That's why Paul wrote in Galatians 6 morning, he says, Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Restore him. When he says you who are spiritual, he's not talking about some kind of like spiritually elite. He's talking about you who are believers. Believers, go to him and seek to restore him. When that passage we looked at in 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul's so blunt, he's so blunt and clear, calling out sin. And he says this in verse 5, he says that you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's it's like, whoa, Paul. Wow. That you're to remove the leaven. Remove this one from your midst. Deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why? Paul says, why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Do what's difficult. Do what's hard. 
the man living according to the flesh might be saved on the day of the Lord. Listen, when we think about this, we think about Matthew 18, we think about how we function as a church family. May we never lose sight of the truth and the goal that it is always for the restoration of the individual. We're a bunch of sinners. We, we are a bunch of sinners. There's no one in here that can go, you're a bunch of sinners. None of us. All of us and say, first person plural, we are a bunch of sinners. And all of us could say with Paul, I'm the foremost. I mean, all of us would readily admit that if we're honest. We know sins of our heart. That means that there will be times where sin needs to be confronted. And I, I'll ask you as your pastor to please do that. Please do it. With one another. With us as elders. Please do it. But as you do it, remember that the tool for use is the Word of God. It's not you preaching your personal convictions and stances on cultural issues. It's the Word of God. I'm not saying that your convictions aren't important, and I'm not saying that cultural issues aren't important. But the Word of God is our tool for defining sin and confronting sin and restoring believers in their walk with the Lord. So please do so. But please do it, as Paul says in Galatians 6.1, with a spirit of gentleness. Speak the truth in love, as he says in Ephesians 4. Build one another up. Edifying one another. Speaking grace as necessary in the moment, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. Be patient and kind. Merciful, gracious, as we see in Scripture. But never neglect the truth. May we be a church that spurs one another on, steps into hard and awkward conversations because we care so much for one another and care so much for this local body. I want us to close our time today our time of response with just a time of prayer. The worship team's going to come up and they'll close us out in singing before the throne. But as they do that, I want to just invite you to just to bow your head, close your eyes to, to just be in a time of prayer. And I want to just kind of guide you through a few things to pray as we think about this text and response. So let's spend some time in prayer for a moment. First, would you just thank God for the local church, this local church in particular, a, 
A gift of the Lord for your spiritual growth, encouragement, and accountability. So thank the Lord for this church. And next, would you thank God for those who have at some point lovingly rebuked you? Would you pray for those whom you know in this body who perhaps are struggling with sin of some sort? Would you pray for them? And would you pray that God would grant you the the necessary love and courage, if necessary, to go and tell a brother or sister of their sin, to call them to repentance? And then finally, would you ask God to grant you humility in the event that you are approached or humility when you approach someone. Father, we bow before you God, we acknowledge and confess that we are sinful men and women. And God, we recognize that. We know that there are struggles we have. We battle sin. This certainly is not a call just to walk around whacking each other over the head with Scripture every time someone struggles or every time someone sins. Lord, your word says that Love covers a multitude of sin. That we, we recognize that. We love one another through it. We're patient with one another. So God, let us be patient. Let us be kind and merciful and forgiving towards one another. But Lord, I pray that that would not lead to a false understanding of love where we just never deal with sin, we never confront it. But Lord, when we see a brother or sister who is just in it, who's habitually in sin or going astray, Lord, that we would lovingly go and tell them their sin, that they might be restored and repent before you to walk with you, Lord. So God, help us do that. Help us to do that with grace and truth. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.